This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The City of Hamilton's webpage for LRT, there is a frequently asked questions section for frequently asked questions about LRT. Is it enough to satisfy those who are opposed or have more questions uh, to the LRT? I uh, should mention that, uh, of course, we uh, tried to get Paul Johnson and uh, and Keenan Loomis and various other people, but busy this time of year, so it's obviously uh, weren't able to get them on. Uh, let's bring in uh, Carol Lasich of uh, Gilbert's Big and Tall. She's an opponent to LRT. She is with us now. Hello, Carol. How are you today? Hi, Scott. Very well. Thank you. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Mm-hmm. So uh, your thoughts, your thoughts on, on the frequently asked questions section, uh, is this enough for people who uh, aren't happy with the answers that they're getting? Well, to be honest with you, I, when I uh, um, learned of this, we were hopeful that um, after all of the uh, seven information sessions and contributions from all the constituents, that there'd be actually um, real answers to some of the, you know, to all the questions that uh, we asked. But uh, honestly, Scott, I have to tell you, and I'm not trying to be negative because I was hopeful, mm-hmm. um, you know, in just reviewing all these supposed answers, they, the, the questions still remain. These are the same answers and responses that we were given at the information sessions. Mm-hmm. So, in my in my opinion, they these questions are still all unanswered. Nothing substantiated, and um, so you know we we have huge concerns. So, what are some of the prominent questions that you feel have not been answered yet? Uh, I, the the major one being cost, and um, you know, and and another concern is uh, the the fact that. Uh, you know, the city keeps continually um, stressing the fact that there is ridership there. <clears throat> Pardon me. But a recent article in the spec really um, indicated that we, we have low ridership. We don't have enough ridership to sustain a system like this. And um, so, pardon me, the, you know, those two issues in particular really resonate very strongly and um <clears throat> but predominantly it's the cost factor scott i mean we are just we just can't afford it uh you know hydro is going up the whole you know taxes are increasing uh you know we're getting the carbon tax i mean people are being taxed so so badly and um there's going to be no money left. I, I, yeah, I'm, hey, I, I'm, I'm with you on all that tax stuff. I, I, I hear that loud and clear. But at the end of the day, we're asking about what's the complete cost going to be mm-hmm. and what's the ridership going to be? And do you think it is even possible to do anything more than have an educated guess on all of those? I mean, you're talking about a project that's going to take an awfully long time to build. Um, and as far as ridership, uh, you would think as time goes by and as the city's projected to get towards 750,000 people that that ridership will on all forms of transit will only increase are these questions you can really get accurate answers to 5 and 10 years out well i mean from an that will satisfy that will satisfy anyone i guess is my point no i i agree but I think um, uh, from an engineering perspective, I believe that there are um, some ballpark figures that could be thrown into the um, into the assortment with regards to actually building a bridge, building an underpass, 
getting those cost estimates. And um, but then, isn't that all supposed to come in with uh, within the umbrella of the of the total scope of the project? Supposedly, but and they continually and it, we're continually led to believe that everything is going to be included in this one billion dollars. But at the end of the day, once all the spending is done with regards to the um, information sessions, the uh, salaries, the offices set up, the um, mailings, et cetera, we just wonder how much of that and, and, you know, the inflation, um, how much of that billion dollars is really going to be left at the end of the day to actually build an LRT. And and so, I mean, until we get... um, until we sign uh, the operating and maintenance cost agreement, um, then you know, then I think we can look at um, you know moving forward and, and considering other things. But I mean, is this not all? Is, is this not all a part of the discovery process, though? Is this not all a part of moving forward? Like again, and I don't mean to be mm-hmm. an expert. I'm just yeah. playing devil's advocate here. Um, you, you know, being involved in, in, in projects like this, mm-hmm. I, I just think it's impossible to, to, to come up with some of the answers. They can give you 85 to 95 percent of the answers, but there's some things over a period of time that you just can't guarantee. And, you know, and I'm wondering if opponents are asking things that just will never be answered. Well, as taxpayers, I think we have every right to ask them to begin with. Well, I would, I would, I would suggest that that's absolutely correct as yeah. well. But you know, to get a firm, here's your LRT. It's going to cost you one billion one hundred and forty-five and no. sixty-five. Like that just ain't going to happen. No, and and we get that a hundred percent. But but I think what we're looking for is a little bit more information and substantiated evidence. Um, it the the aspect of um, <clears throat> increased economic development. If you look at all the other um, LRT projects around North America, there is nothing that's been substantiated, nothing attaching economic development with an LRT. The current development that's happening in, in Hamilton has nothing to do with the LRT. It has to do with the fact that our real estate costs are so much lower than Toronto and Oakville mm-hmm. that people, Torontonians are moving here because they it's still affordable for them. Mm-hmm. So there is... You know, no. But obviously, if you're in the pro, but obviously, if you're in the process of doing that, mm-hmm. you you know, it, the value of the properties around the LRT and people who are coming, you know, if you're in the process in the next five to ten years of moving from Toronto to Hamilton, uh, you're going to go where you believe the development's going to be and where your property is going to sustain its value and grow. I mean, because that's what's been happening on the rest of Southern Ontario. But as you mentioned, Hamilton has seemed to have been void of for the last True. 25, 30 years. And I would suggest it's because of lack of vision mm-hmm. with something like LRT that Hamilton finds itself in that position. I mean, we did the same thing with uh, with the stadium. We did the same thing with the Red Hill uh, Expressway. Uh, you know, it, it's, how many times can, can Hamilton sit back and watch things around them uh, grow and, and they still stay stagnated? I mean, uh, and again, I'm not saying that this is the, the silver bullet by any means, mm-hmm. and, 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 I'm, and I'm, I'm firmly be- I'm behind all of you people asking all of these pertinent questions but i think at what time at what point do you say you know what we got to we got to take a chance on this basically the growth has been happening in hamilton in the outer outer regions i mean look at the growth in waterdown a huge massive grimsby stony creek it's not necessarily happening um uh 
you know, as and, and I would suggest that now. the reason it's not Hamil- happening in Hamilton is because Hamilton's been stagnated that way. Uh-huh. I mean, those places that you mentioned have all been growing. There's no growth in Hamilton okay, because there's so, nothing going on. So then, to to that point, uh, to that end, this LRT is not going to service the outskirts of Hamilton that we that need to be serviced. And um, to um, but won't part regard- of the but part of the blast program does not answer all of that does not like it's just it's just one spoke in the wheel. But how much how many how long do we have to wait until we see a complete blast development? This is this is the major issue, and uh, Environment Hamilton currently has um, a petition on their website um, that designating um, fix the HSR. So as opponents of the LRT. We are advocating so strongly uh, towards doing that. We need to fix our HSR and get that up and efficiently running before we even consider spending all this money and um, time and effort with, with an LRT that, like, who knows, um, will be extended. I mean, the cost ramifications alone of the LRT, you look at every other city that's ever experienced LRT projects, there are huge, huge cost overruns, huge delays. Look what's happening currently in Toronto now. Taxpayers are now, um, you know, saddled with an $80 million um, uh, cost factor that they never really realized before. Plus, so many other things added towards that. So, All right, Carol, i got to move on because i got to grab some more guests. Okay. But uh, Carol Lazic uh, has been with us, uh, Gilbert's big and tall opponent of LRT. Carol, keep up the questions. Thanks yeah. for the call. Much Thanks, appreciated. Scott. Thank All right, you. Bye-bye. Uh, let's bring in Larry Deany, former mayor of City of Hamilton. Uh, Larry, are we ever going to get a complete cost, a complete this and a complete that before we get this thing done? <laughs> well, first of all, let me say that Carol uh, Lazic uh, makes some uh, excellent points uh, that um, need to be listened to. <clears throat> and whether you support LRT as I do, or whether you're against LRT uh, as Carol is, uh, I think it helps the whole community to have some important questions answered. Mm-hmm. And um, this latest attempt by the city to uh, put major questions that have been asked answers to those questions, at least, uh, on a website uh, and give detailed responses, I think is a step in the right direction. Will you ever reach a point where every single question has been answered before you move forward? No, because it's a dynamic process. And if you wait until you have every single response to every single question, you're never going to move. You're never going to Well, the, co- the cost of the project will probably have doubled by then. Well, well, I mean, there's that, that escalating cost as well. But, but also, understand that um, you, people will always have questions. Uh, and so if you answer a question, they'll ask another one. And so if you wait until everybody stops asking questions, you'll never do anything. So at some point, you've got to pull the trigger and you've got to say, look, we're going forward. And the city has done that. And now, as they're implementing this project, they're doing the best that they can to answer as many questions as possible, and they're using various means. You know that they've hired people to knock on doors of businesses along the route. Um, They have a team that's uh, generating the plans to implement the program, and they have now are using uh, the Internet and the website to uh, respond 
specifically the questions. Will that ever satisfy critics like Carol? Probably not. But is it the best that the city can do? I think so. I think they're doing it. Uh, cost and ridership were two of Carol's major concerns. Right. Will, will people ride this thing, Larry? Are we worried that it's going to go oh, up yeah. and down the track empty? No, I don't think so. Look, the reason um, the reason that they've selected the route that they have is that the ridership already exists. Uh, the, the, the point that's been made by, by uh, some uh, staff even, uh, our former director of the HSR, <clears throat> was that ridership and, and the previous mayor... Uh, Mayor Bertino, when he was in in, uh, in the mayor's chair, was that ridership wasn't yet up to a level that would that would uh, justify having a high speed train like the LRT. The point, though, is that this is not a project that's opened um, yesterday or will open tomorrow. You're looking at a future uh, uh, program and project that is going to look after the city of Hamilton for a generation and more to come. And so really, this you have to look at the projections around around growth. You have to look at what they're doing along the route to encourage uh, more intense development there. And there's going to be an uptake on that, I'm convinced. Uh, and, and, and that will always improve and increase the ridership. So it's, you can't look at today and say, well, it's not enough. So you have to look at, at, you know, 10 years from now and say, what are the projections there? And I think it more than justifies this this project. Uh, what about uh, one last quick question? Uh, other transportation, buses, etc. Yes. We should be we should be improving that. Uh, talk about Absolutely. how the, how the blast system and all of that will incorporate. Well, I always thought, quite frankly, that they should have started with blast to show how every part of the community would benefit by an improved uh, public transportation system and then indicate that LRT is a component of that. What they've done is done it backwards. Um, And they sort of have been talking about the LRT, and now they've built a blast program around that. Uh, You know, it should have, the order should have been uh, the other way around. And I've maintained that since 2010 when when I was running from air and and advocating um, for doing that, exactly that, uh, while supporting LRT even then. Uh, the the um, the uh, uh, the issue is that you know, and and this is what Carol, I think I heard her advocate. She said, "Look, let's improve everything else, and then let's worry about LRT." I think you can do both. You don't have to. It's not an either or. Yeah. It's an it's an uh, this and that uh, where uh, you're now uh, being funded to construct an LRT program, and at the same time, how can we take resources that are going to be saved? because they no longer will be used along that route, and redeploy them along the BLAST system. So, you know, where I live, and I live in Stony Creek, and I remember my days on Stony Creek Council, we had complaints by some parts of the Stony Creek community, Winona and elsewhere, uh, who complained that we were not being serviced by buses. Well, now you can point to the system and say, look, here is how the transportation is going to be improved in your neighborhood, and hopefully, over time, we'll have a timeline for that as well. And that implies, you know, funding, obviously, as well as the improvement in the, in the hard infrastructure, whether it be uh, buses or whatever other system they use. Larry, but I'm going to have to cut you out there. We're simply okay. out of time, but I very All much right. appreciate Larry DeAndy, former mayor of Hamilton. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A lot of people will say... 
Yeah, can't wear helmets when you're tobogganing. That takes the fun out of it. You know, they wear, they wear helmets skiing now. You go to a ski hill, man, most of the people have helmets on. And when you think about it, it makes total sense. But where do you draw the line between safe and bubble wrap? Well, uh, we remember that, uh, well, I guess the debate with tobogganing in Hamilton has been going on for some years. Uh, ever since, uh, I believe, oddly enough, it was a lawyer who sued the city for like $900,000. And so the city said, well, the hell with that. We're, cl- we're closing everything down. We're getting rid of the no tobogganing, no fun. They always say Ottawa is the city that fun left behind. But, you know, you're thinking, my goodness, maybe Hamilton's turning into that. And then, of course, I remember talking about this last year when they were debating all of this. And, you know, at the end of the day, whether you permit it or not, I'm not sure if you're any less or more liable. Uh, Let's bring in uh, Brian Simo. He's a personal injury lawyer. Ross McBride, he is with us now. Hello, Brian. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. No, great to be with you, Scott. Uh, so has the city opened itself up for liability here by allowing tobogganing on these four hills? You know, it's a great question, and it's it's an interesting one. Um, you know, ironically enough, I don't know if it was you and I chatting about this a year or two ago. I think it might have been, yeah. Do you remember the ban that they had? Yes, exactly. They, yeah, they I think we this, talked about this. Yeah, we, they had this ban, but it was a ban that, as I understood it, they were basically advertising that they weren't enforcing and we were questioning whether or not that would protect them from liability. Right. And now, now they've done, and I actually suspect we'll have to pull the tape. We'll do the Don Cherry where we pull the tape and see if we were right. But uh, we'll have to pull the tape and check. But, you know, I think one of the things we chatted about was uh, maybe they'd be better off having controlled environments that they do some inspection on and, and do a reasonable job of trying to keep safe and allowing, you know, permitted tobogganing in certain areas and not allowing it in others. Maybe that would be a better idea. And now, of course, that's exactly what they've done. So I guess we're on uh, consult. (laughs) (laughs) I remember having this discussion, Brian, because, like you said, I remember asking you, if they say no tobogganing, does that take them off the hook? And I don't believe it did, did it? Yeah, well, I think what we chatted about was that it was unlikely if they weren't enforcing that at all. If all they were doing was putting a blanket statement out there saying we don't permit it, but then doing nothing at all to change anything or enforce anything or make anything safer or bar access to anything, well, I mean, it's just a statement. It means nothing, right? Uh, but in any event, I don't know that it was ever tested in court uh, as far as uh, from a liability perspective goes. Certainly I'm not aware of any cases where anyone attempted that. But You talked um, about a reasonably safe hill. What makes a reasonably safe hill? Oh, good, another good question. What, what does make a reasonably safe hill? You know, I go back to my childhood, and I remember the hills we used to toboggan on, and, and I just heard you chatting about helmets and whatnot. We never wore helmets. <laughs> exactly. or, they'd be sheets of ice. You know, it's shocking we survived um, because those were not reasonably safe, and we should have had helmets on. But, uh, you know, what makes a reasonably safe hill? If you look at that case that you mentioned, uh, the case which, again, I'm sitting in the same office where I think that decision was drafted uh, many, many years ago by uh, the uh, Honorable Justice Fedak. But um, if you look at what was unsafe in that case, uh, as I understand it, there was like piping at the bottom of the hill with certain um, like ditches that people went into when they could strike these like drainage pipes. Oh, man. You know, stuff that you, you think about and go, you know, it's obviously not something you want to be steering a toboggan towards. Uh, 
Uh, so the city right now has, I'm just on their website, permitted tobogganing hills. Looks like there's four of them? Yeah, Shadok, uh, Kings Forest, uh, Garth and Stone Church Reservoir, and Waterdown Memorial Park. Yeah, and if you, if you look, it's, uh, they've got great overhead views of where they are, where they permit tobogganing. And in most of them, it looks like they're either on golf courses with great big wide fairways, um, or they're on what look to be kind of like soccer-type fields with yeah. no trees at all. You know, that's, that to me at least looks like a great example, one of the baseball fields here, um, of you've got no major obstacles. You're not heading toward any type of tree or something hard for someone to strike. There's no major drainage ditch where there's a sudden drop that someone could go over and, and strike something. You know, but at the end of the day, um, the weather conditions dictate safety as well. You know, if if we get freezing rain, guess what? Those hills aren't going to be safe either. Yeah, because they're going to be sheets of ice. So, you know, has the city done a which, of course, if you're a kid tobogganing, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Put a ramp at the end too. Exactly. And a ditch. That's great. <laughs> well, that's what I said, Brian. I mean, we we've got a real safe hill near where we live. I mean, there's nothing around it. It just goes onto a football field. But the kids build ramps, and they've they've actually got these plastic ramps that I guess you can buy that are for the sole purpose of tobogganing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's an interesting case there, too, right? If someone sells someone a ramp for the purpose of becoming airborne while you're tobogganing, is that a product that should actually be sold on the show? Good point. Maybe it came from the States. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but don't sell those Kinder Surprise eggs down there. That's yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. The, um, in, in any event, so, you know, the city has done, what appears to me, at least, and I'm no judge or jury here, but it appears to me they've done a somewhat reasonable job of finding some hills that, that look, at least from the aerial views, to be reasonably safe. And certainly, I'm sure they sent someone out to go find places that they thought were appropriate. Um, so, I mean, I like that approach. Uh, you know, uh, let's, let's hope everyone has a safe tobogganing season on these places, and there is no test case to find out whether it's reasonable or not. I wonder if there's somebody from the city that actually went down the hill. Perhaps a counselor. <laughs> now, because they've uh, they've approved these hills, as you mentioned earlier, and we talked about last year, does that cover them in other scenarios? Well, you're not you're on a hill that hasn't been approved. Like you know, sorry, we can't help you there. Mm-hmm. Uh, does I, that I, does I, that I alleviate it, the the lawsuits from those other hills? Well, I think it certainly strengthens their argument. You know, they've said, well, look, these are hills that we monitor. I'm presuming they're monitoring them. These are hills that we have people out inspecting the conditions from time to time, which I assume they're doing. You know, these are the places that we've designated as permitted because we can take some steps to, you know, uh, to try to ensure some safety. So if you go somewhere else, you're on your own because we've been reasonable. And again, the standard, is, as you mentioned earlier, is what's reasonable. The city doesn't have to be perfect. They don't have to ensure, you know, that they're having lines of people sweeping the hills of obstacles every day. That's not a reasonable precaution. So what's, what's reasonable in these circumstances? And if, if finding a few hills where they say, you know what, we can keep an eye on these, we think they're nice and wide, they're not too steep, um, you know, if that's reasonable, then they will be protected from liability. Uh, and that's really the question for a judge or jury in these cases. Um, you know, is that a reasonable enough precaution? Uh, what about stuff like kid ramps? If all of a sudden, um, you know, and, you know, whether they're store-bought or man-made out of, you know, just rolling a big snowball down there, does someone from city staff have to go in and tear all those down, push over all the snowman or, or any sort of ramps in order to keep it safe? Well, you know, if you look at the city's website, which I'm flipping through right now, it says to reduce the risk of injury to yourselves and others, follow these tips. And they actually say that construction of snow ramps or jumps is not permitted. 
So they're they're, they're, they're technically they're they're banning that mm-hmm. as per their their website. Whether there's someone there actually monitoring it or checking, I have no idea. Um, and I'd be surprised if they were there on a regular basis, but they may be. There's only four to check, so they may have people going around and inspecting and dismantling ramps if they find them. You know, I, I certainly think that's not a bad idea if they want to protect themselves from liability. You know, it doesn't take that many staff to, to keep an eye on these hills uh, and to make sure that people aren't building massive, you know, uh, ski jumps. For, for <laughs> Something that you see at the Quebec Winter Carnival. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, whether whether they need to actually have staff, like a lifeguard, almost on site, I don't know if that's necessary. Um, at the end of the day, tobogganing, we know tobogganing is a risky activity. People assume some risk on themselves when they're tobogganing, including young people. Um, so there is an assumption of some risk. Really, what what cases where cities have been or municipalities have been found responsible uh, for injuries are where there's particularly, um, you know, usually egregious risks that should have been prevented or could have been prevented and weren't. And usually in those cases, the municipalities were well aware that people were tobogganing in these places and they were well aware of their risks. And the courts found that they did nothing about it or did insufficient things about it. So, you know, it um, certainly I think this is a step in the right direction for the city. Uh, what about the restriction at night? Uh, again, uh, is that just something that uh, they have to put in there just to cover the rear ends? Yeah, and I think it's probably a good idea. I'm, again, I'm looking at the aerial aerial video of these uh, these sites. Some of them I don't think are lit. Lit. I mean, the ones on golf courses. If I know those golf courses, I don't think there's lighting there. So it's not a great idea to be going down a hill with trees on either side in the dark. Um, you know, whether that's just a sign or whether they're actually going to go enforce that, I'd be interested to know, and I don't know. Um, you know, whether it's going to have staff members circulate amongst the uh, the different sites and actually kick people off the courses if they're still there afterwards. It would be interesting to know that. Uh, certainly, again, that would help protect them from liability if they did something like that. Whether it's necessary, it's a good question. Uh, interesting, on the site, they actually, uh, as you mentioned, tell you to wear a helmet, but actually give you examples of the helmet that should be worn. That's really... Uh, that's really uh, covering the rear end, is it not? Good yeah, for them. It's also, it's great information. I mean, they, they show you, you can use a standard hockey helmet. A lot yeah. of people have that kicking around, so that works just fine. And then they show this ski snowboard helmet. You know, I really, um, I'm really uh, glad to see the city is doing that and taking, uh, taking you know, head injury safety quite seriously. Um, it's great to have that information right on the website. Uh, do you think this is the sort of model that other cities will follow? Do you think this is perhaps what they've done here? I suspect so. I suspect so. I'm not familiar with um, what they're doing in other jurisdictions, other than I know other places have looked at bans as well. I think we chatted about that last year. Um, but I think you're going to see this more and more across Ontario and maybe even North America, at least the northern half that gets snow. <laughs> the, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an idea of, you know, what can we do that reasonably protects people without being the fun police and without being, uh, you know, overbearing. And at the same time, without putting such huge demands on a municipality where uh, they simply can't, um, you know, they can't meet that expectation, where they're, you know, grooming courses and stuff like that. 
I mean, we have to we have to spend our tax dollars wisely at the same yeah. time as well. Here's a uh, a typical message, a tweet that came in. Uh, Odds are much higher you'll drown in your own bathtub. Why not a show on that or on how we don't understand risk? Again, uh, a typical question, but what this person's failing to understand is drowning in your own bathtub doesn't cost the city $900,000. True. True. And, and really, that's what it comes down to is liability. It's, it's if someone gets hurt, the city gets sued. And, uh, you know, there's almost a million dollars right there for one single accident. So, uh, again, we have to keep that in mind. It's just it's beyond common sense, is it not? Yeah, and the one thing I don't know if I disagree or I'd agree with in the tweet is that it's more common to drown in your bathtub than be injured tobogganing. I mean, a lot of people get injured tobogganing. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's not it's not uncommon, and so it's a it's an activity that we have to take safety in seriously. Um, you know, people should be wearing helmets, especially kids. Uh, you know, it's something that we have to be very very concerned about. Um, so I don't know if I'd agree with the, the fact that more people drown in bathtubs and get injured tobogganing. Well, and as if somehow that makes it all right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, well, we never wore a seatbelt when we were young, so sure. I guess we should not wear one now. <laughs> yeah, and maybe, maybe it's a good thing to prevent both. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I compare this to ski hills. We went skiing a couple years ago. I hadn't been in years, and I couldn't believe the amount of people that were wearing helmets. Majority of the people on the ski hill uh, were wearing helmets. At what point do we lose uh, um, uh, impressions like we just have from this email or this tweet where people saying, well, you know, it's all bubble wrap society now. When I was a kid, we used to... At what point do we go from there to, hey, you know what, everyone else is doing it. Maybe I should have a, you know, something protecting my melon. Well, I'm glad you brought up the seatbelt example because if you look back 30, 40 years ago, how many people drove around without a seatbelt on? Yeah. I mean, I'm not that old. I can remember driving around yep. without anyone being that concerned about whether your seatbelt was on. Especially kids in car seats. Oh, exactly. You piled in four of us in the back. <laughs> Sorry, Mom and Dad, for admitting you guys did this. But piled in four kids yeah. in the back of a car, and no one really blinked an eye unless you got pulled over and you got in a bit of trouble. Well, but. look at station wagons. You'd be in the back and hanging out, your arms hanging out the back with a window down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, the world's changed that way. And I think, you know, we, we always look at liability. We look at what the reasonable person does. And, and I think there's been a trend in society. I don't think it's necessarily a bad trend that the expectation of what's reasonable and what does a reasonably cautious person do has gone up. Mm-hmm. We expect people to be more cautious because we're aware of more. Hmm. We know more information about head injuries than we ever used to. Why do you think we're all wearing helmets now on ski hills? Yeah. We know what the effects of a long-term concussion can be in multiple concussions. We know how serious that is. So I, I think you know the world has become a place where the expectation of what people will do is more to protect themselves than others, and I don't think that's a bad thing. And again, when you think about it, uh, we're doing a lot more stuff than we ever used to in that regard. We seem to be playing a high, you know, harder, higher, faster than we used to. Although some people will blame the equipment on that. Oh, sure. I mean, skis are faster than they used to be. They design them that way. Yeah. I mean, toboggans. Look at the toboggans we have. I was out there Christmas shopping last weekend, and some of the toboggans you can buy. Yeah. You know, I remember when the GT Snow Racer came out and how... You know, how, you know, uh, revolutionary that was. Gosh, compared to the stuff you have now. I know. And like anything with plastic, like those those carpets, which are virtually uncontrollable once they oh. start going down the hill, and the cheapest things you can possibly produce. But, man, sure. you fly on those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then you end up tumbling end over end when you hit a divot. I mean, yeah. And that's part of the fun. It is part of the fun sometimes. But it's it's not the safest thing to be doing, so... 
you know, trying to take some reasonably safe precautions with it, I think it's it's a great thing, including helmet use. Considering how far we've come with things like bike helmets and made that more access, uh, acceptable, is it just is it the same thing when it comes to skiing and tobogganing? It's just the way it is now. Yeah, I think so. You know, I just had a little one, uh, well, she's not that long ago, she's almost two now. But, I mean, she's not going to be allowed on ice or snow without, uh, well, snow as in tobogganing or skiing. Yeah. She's going to be in the front yard. But, you know, without a helmet on. It's just, it's one of those things that I wouldn't do because I'd worry too much. And I think a lot of society feels that way. And I think we feel that way for good reason. We, we know more now. Yeah, good point. Brian Simos been with us, personal injury lawyer, Ross and McBride. Tobogganing season uh, started officially in the Hammer Four Hills Open for those who uh, want to get involved. And they are Shadok Golf Course, Kings Forest Golf Course, Garth and Stone Church Reservoir, and Waterdown Memorial Park at 200 Hamilton Street. Uh, Brian, thanks for the time and insight. Um, who knows whether we'll have this discussion again in the future. Yeah, when they change the rules again next year, give me a shout. We'll chat. We'll chat all right, we'll get an update. All right. <laughs> Listen, you have a safe and happy holidays. I wish the best to all your listeners as well. Thank you very much. Back to you, Brian. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, we hear a lot about the things like the, the news stories, like the 1,400 families that had to be reconnected to avoid, you know, freezing uh, through the winter in Ontario. But this affects everybody, including the people that employ you, including the people that run the businesses and the factories and, and, and the office buildings and what have you. I mean, they all require energy. Uh, and as a result, uh, a lot of businesses on, in Ontario, uh, specifically in manufacturing, are, are upset with the Queen's Park or with Queen's Park's policy on energy and are, are looking for help. And you know what happens if they don't get help? They just go somewhere else. To talk more about all of this, Jocelyn Bamford is with us, founder of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers in Ontario and vice president of Automatic Coding Limited and is with us now. Hello, Jocelyn. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. How are you? And thanks for having me. My first job was uh, in Hamilton, so it's near and dear to my heart. Oh, perfect. Uh, So tell us about the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers. So our coalition started just um, in September when I attended a meeting um, of manufacturers and exporters and cap and trade was explained to us. So um, I immediately became concerned and went back and looked at some of my hydro bills. And, and to my dismay, I found that on my May bill, uh, I had uh, used about $5,000 of uh, hydro, and my global adjustment charge was 15500 and other charges were 9000 So on a $30,000 bill, 5000 was electricity and all the rest was other charges. Oh, and my then goodness. That got worse in July when my bill uh, for power was 6000 but my global adjustment jumped up $10,000, uh, and my delivery charges stayed around the $10,800 mark. So my total bill went from 30000 to 40000 from May to July. And so I became beside myself when I when I realized what was going on with with that um, amount of uh, electricity, and so started to do some comparisons to the states where uh, I'm paying about twenty cents now a kilowatt hour, where you can get about eight cents a kilowatt hours. And then uh, looking in the cap and trade, uh, the exact thing that you had just talked about, where um, not enough analysis had been done specifically on the small to medium-sized marketplace, I could see the same thing happening with our natural gas bill under cap and trade. And we're low emitters. Um, 85% of manufacturing in Ontario is 50 people and below. So a large majority are low emitters. 
And we can't opt into cap-and-trade, but what, how we are going to pay for cap-and-trade is just like the regular residents where we'll see our, high, our natural gas bill uh, start to skyrocket. So we'll see the same trajectory that we saw in electricity on natural gas, and that's just unsustainable for, for anybody in the province. I asked the Premier yesterday how we were supposed to have confidence in cap-and-trade when mistakes were made with the energy plan, and she said that they had learned from their mistakes, and a lot of people have been doing cap-and-trade and got it figured out. And that, that's not true for the small to medium-sized manufacturer. In fact, I, I was just in some meetings with, with uh, some deputy ministers um, just last week and provided them all of my hydro and, and gas bills. And they had said that they you know, had done a lot of studies on the larger manufacturers, but in the small to medium size, they didn't have a lot of visibility or knowledge. And a lot of the programs that they have to, to kind of buffer this doesn't affect, uh, doesn't impact us because we are again under that under that threshold. We're under that threshold where those programs come into place. So for my business, we're going to see anywhere um, from thirty-five to fifty thousand dollar increase. Some manufacturers in our coalition are going to see two hundred to three hundred thousand dollar increase in their energy costs next year, and some well above that. So. When you're competing globally, especially with uh, the United States, and our energy uh, costs are so out of whack, it makes it almost impossible to compete globally. Uh, uh, the Auditor General obviously asking for more transparency, and you can see why, and, and maybe we don't, and we obviously do notice this on a residential bill, but there's certainly nowhere near the, the cost of what yours are in business. But from what you said there, it appears that about 25% of your bill is about electricity. The rest is global adjustment and delivery. Right, and and the same uh, thing is going to happen in when we see the natural gas increase, and the, there is no going to be no transparency. So when we see our increase in our our gas bill from the gas companies, they aren't they aren't going to be able to. And they have asked they the gas companies want to break out what the cap and trade charge is going to be, mm-hmm. but they've been denied that um, opportunity. Yeah. So again, we're asking for transparency. We're asking them to push the implementation of cap-and-trade back until they fully understand the impact of small to medium-sized manufacturers in Ontario. Uh, Many will say, well, most say, the global adjustment is really the subsidization of renewables, what it's costing. That's what the global adjustment is all about. Uh, Again, the Premier said that manufacturing of renewables is increasing, that this is the manufacturing industries of tomorrow. Are you seeing that? Are you seeing that these industries are growing? So, so one of, I, I just want to make one point before I comment on that, and that is that when the Premier said that you know, we are bad actors, that there's nothing that could be farther from the truth to that. We, our company has invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in energy-efficient equipment, um, all, all the way from compressors to infrared to lighting, and, and many of the manufacturers in Ontario have, have invested in order to um, be more energy-efficient and reduce our greenhouse gases. And, and we continue to do that. But if we continue to see energy um, costs rising, we're not going to be able to do that. And we're seeing a lot of companies relocate their growth into the United States, um, if not moving outright. So, so as Leland said, there's, they're not going to grow here. They're going to grow in the States. And, and that's certainly going to be disastrous for manufacturing in Ontario. 
Uh, you talked about the size of these companies. Yours is Automatic Coding Limited. Give us an example. How many people would you employ? What do you do? So we employ 75 people. Uh, we are a corrosion coder, and so that means we just we paint other people's um, mm-hmm. equipment. And we do that in a, in a special way that allows them to have enhanced life cycles. So, so some of the things that we do in our plant is the U.S. Navy, for example, sends up um, parts for us to coat that we've developed and patented a specialized coating solution for them. So they're a large customer, um, and we do any all all different kinds of of corrosion coatings, and we've developed an environmentally friendly way of of coating uh, pipelines um, in the field. So we have we're part of the solution to this new green uh, technology, hmm. but we're being impacted by. Uh, energy prices that make it not sustainable to do business here in Ontario. What's the response been from government after you've sat down and had these discussions with them? Well, they said they're going to try to come up with some mitigation strategies, but they're not going to be able to, they're not, they're not promising um, that they can do that um, to the, till the middle of 2017. And we're saying that's too late. They're asking us to pay starting Janu- January 1. They ought to have ha- done their due diligence and have their p- policies in place. So we're asking them to speed up uh, those mitigation strategies, and, and they, there's a lot they can do. We provided at least 10 recommendations, anything from tax credits um, to, to lowering taxes to buffer the cost of the increased cap-and-trade. So there's quite a few solutions that we've recommended to them, and they just need to um, either push this back till they decide or move those uh, policies forward. What do you think as a business person is the solution? Is this about rebates? Is this about getting us over the hump until this all takes off and makes us rich? Or is this about a system that just from the start has not been set up correctly? There's been no cost analysis. There's been no due diligence. And, and it needs a major, major overhaul. Or do we stick with what we have and, and just try to band-aid the solution? I, I think they, it needs an overhaul. They need to look at the policies. They need to understand the impact. And the other thing that's, that's going to be a, a consequence of cap-and-trade is if one of our companies moves down to the States, th- you're going to see an increase in global greenhouse gases because they're going to come off of our electrical grid that has already replaced coal and go down to uh, somewhere in the United States that is on coal, and then you'll see a rise in global greenhouse gases. So not only is it going to drive industry out of Ontario, but it's not going to address the problem that they wanted to address. And and the other thing is manufacturing in Ontario today sits 15 points below the 2020 greenhouse gas target. So it's there's no urgency to to right now to fix uh, they're fixing an issue that doesn't exist. It's like you go to the doctor for a headache and he does a lobotomy on you. Mm. <laughs> uh, what do you think the cause is of this? Because again, we we when I was talking to the premier about this. Uh, it was enough of that bad stuff, Scott. It, it's about replacing getting off coal. It's about not having brownouts. It's about the infrastructure, which it seems they've been doing that for the last 15 years. I mean, how long can you keep using those excuses? Is it about upgrading the infrastructure? Is it about getting off coal? Or is it just about a renewable plan that there was no cost analysis done? I, I think they haven't done their cost analysis, and they need to go back to the drawing board and, and look at... Um, look at it holistically and look at the impact to small and medium-sized business because 
Ontario is full of, of companies that have great innovation. And, and let's not make our Ontario innovation another country's success story. That would be tragic. So uh, so you're not buying that it's getting off coal and infrastructure. You're not buying that I, argument. I'm not buying that. I'm, I'm, I'm think that um, it's about raising raising capital. Uh, that's a very interesting point. Um, uh, lots of talked about the uh, water industry today and, and, and Nestle scooping water from wells and such. And really, whether it's about environment or if it's just about another tax uh, to generate revenue for the government. Um, a lot of us, cap and trade is coming in January. A, a lot of us, are, are, especially from a residential point of view, are just trying to cope with getting through uh, what we now have to, to deal with. How much, how bad or how big of an impact will cap and trade, how much will have? How much is life going to change for us come the new year? I think a lot of people, and, and in industry is the same, and I was no different. If you asked me in September about cap and trade, I knew very little about it. And when I came back from that manufacturer's meeting and started to talk to some of my uh, suppliers and customers, um, a lot of people had no visibility in uh, either, and they, their thought was, oh, I'm a low emitter, it's not going to impact me. Mm-hmm. But it's exact opposite. The, the high emitters have uh, been given credit so that they can get their house in order. But for the rest of us, it impacts us Gen 1, and we don't have any uh, opt-in uh, opportunities or any buffer t- so that we can roll this out slowly. It's just, bam, going to hit us Gen 1. And I think you're going to see a lot of un- unintended consequences of companies leaving or or having all their growth, which is just as, as detrimental. Because where are our kids all going to work? Good point. What, what are the consequences? I mean, wh- what is going to happen? Are, are companies going to move? Uh, you said not so much, but if they're expanding, they'll think twice about come, uh, staying here. Well, I think they're going to move. It's both. I mean, we saw this in Elevator leave Scarborough. There was a company, you know, there's been quite a few companies. Samina was a really large company that left about five years ago. So we're seeing a slow, uh, a drip. And I think that trip's going to be accelerated um, once once cap and trade kicks in. And then other companies are, are starting to um, have all their growth and have strategies that say there's going to be no growth in Ontario. We won't grow here. We'll grow somewhere else. And that's just as damaging to our economy. How big is the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers in Toronto or in Ontario, rather? So, so in 12 weeks, we're, we're hundreds of companies because we've had in the last week um, quite a few uh, associations that have joined that each have hundreds of companies. So, so we've grown from from 50, and then in the last week to with the with the addition of these associations to now hundreds of companies that represent thousands of employees, and we're growing every day because I think this is a when you talk to different companies, their stories are all the same. Can't can't afford to expand here. Um, energy pricing is too high, and there's not a business friendly. Uh, policy and government. And then we don't get the same thing from the states. I get calls every week from different cities uh, in the states asking me to come down and they mm. will provide cheaper energy and tax incentives. And we stay because our heart is here and our people are here. But eventually we're coming to a tipping point. So we're asking the government to address this, to not make the same mistakes that they made on hydro with cap and trade, and to make sure that um, manufacturing and business in Ontario remain strong. So this has only been together, this organization, for like 12 weeks? Yes, we started in September. That is incredible. But it does certainly show the immediacy of this problem, doesn't it? It, it is, and, and that's what we're also trying to impress upon the government, that this isn't something that you can wait around um, for, for mid-next year because people will be making business decisions 
that that it will once they've made are too late to turn the ship around. So we're, we want to impress upon that the government how critical um, an issue this is. And and small to medium sized businesses don't have lobbyists, and we don't have government affairs people. So that we're our head is down. We're trying to um, make a living for us, our employees, and their families, and we don't have time to be looking at government policy. We trust the government that they're not going to do anything to harm them. But we've 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 had an awakening that we need to wake up and and make sure that we people understand the implications on business. Um, and that's why we formed this coalition. Uh, and this is this appears to be the new norm. It's not going away. And and they're very uh, obvious about these increases that will continue. Right. And so the other thing we've said to government, if you don't want to have manufacturers in Ontario, we, we understand. We're all business people. Um, just let us know and we'll be on our way. But let's let's have a honest and open uh, conversation and have the strength of character to say if manufacturing isn't important to you, just just let us know. But we think manufacturing in Ontario is important. We think it's innovative. We think we've done a lot in advanced manufacturing. We've had to to survive. And we still think um, there's a lot of growth that could happen in manufacturing in Ontario. Website, as long as we have the right policy. Website we can go to, Jocelyn, to find more about all of this? We're just setting up our website. So right now we have a Facebook, and the Facebook is, uh, page is the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers. Um, anyone can contact me that's interested to join, and we're asking manufacturers and businesses to, to join our coalition, and they can contact me at Automatic Coating in Scarborough. All right, Jocelyn Bamford has been with us, founder of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers in Ontario. Only been around for 12 weeks, but all already have a, a good head of steam up. She's also the vice president of Automatic Coating Limited. Jocelyn, thanks very much for the time. Uh, keep up the fight. Thanks for having us, and thanks for telling our story. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.